What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Francis Ngannou. Francis is the current UFC heavyweight champion and one of the toughest people on the planet, both mentally and physically. We discuss growing up in Cameroon, his grueling 14-month journey to freedom, getting his first UFC contract, becoming world champion, fighting for higher pay across the sport, his business ventures outside of the UFC, and much more. I had an awesome time with Francis for this conversation, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. First up is SoRare. SoRare is a global sports game and entertainment platform that allows fans to buy, sell, and trade officially licensed player cards as NFTs. The coolest part? Each NFT has real utility. It's like fantasy sports, except you can buy, sell, trade, and manage your lineup with the NFTs. I've been playing their NBA game a lot lately, and I think you'll love it too. Here's how it works. You sign up for an account, which is free, and you're given 20 common cards. Then twice a week, you put together a strategy and build two five-player lineups and enter into competitions. If you win, you get rewarded with even more player cards. But here's the best part. If you sign up today, SoRare is offering my listeners a free, limited card when you buy five cards on the primary market. So go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to play. That's SoRare, S-O-R-A-R-E.com slash JoePomp to play. This episode is sponsored by my friends at 8Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8Sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot, but now I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before. The pod is the only sleep technology that can maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. It's not just me who sleeps on the 8Sleep though. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. Even better, 8Sleep recently launched the next generation of the pod. The new Pod 3 enables more accurate sleep and health tracking with double the amount of sensors, delivering you the best sleep experience on earth. The pod isn't magic, but it definitely feels like it. So go to 8sleep.com Joe to start sleeping cool and save $150 on the pod. 8Sleep currently ships within the US, Canada, the UK, and select countries in the EU. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. All right, we got a lot to talk about. Fighting, business, UFC, everything. But I want to give people context. Can we start all the way back? Cameroon. Wherever you want. What was it like growing up in Cameroon? You know, like growing up in Cameroon, I was thinking, I used to hate that life, you know, when I think about it. It was so, such miserable because like when I was six, my parents get divorced, you know, and my, my whole world fell out, you know. I was very attached to my family. So from six years old, I started to figure out life on my own, living in different different family that I was isolated, you know, isolated at home, at school, because just the primary school, I went to like six schools. So you can imagine sometime one year in some schools, sometime half of year, keep moving like that because people couldn't take care of me as an additional kid of, on their, of their own kids, you know. So it was tough. But I managed, I think like I had a uh, my own visual visual wall in my mind that was like 
the coolest one. I built it like I would like it to be with mom and dad home and everything was cool. You like envisioned I, a house that you wanted. Yeah. I, I, no, like, yeah, I built it. It's not like envision. Yeah. I was envisioned. Yeah. 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 I created it in my mind and he was consistent for years and I like for years. So he was like where I would escape to go to my own house, like where a perfect life would be like. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And so this whole time you're, you're still going to school, but you're, you're working on the side and switching schools. Like talk me through that. Cause I know you, I've heard that you were working a lot as, as when you were younger, right? Which isn't accustomed to people here in the United States, but it seems relatively common where you're from. Yeah. I was nine years old when, uh, I started to work in the sun quarry, in the sun mine. And that was the first time I was very young, but that was the only job around, even though he was designed for adult. And what but, are you doing there? You're, you're shoveling sand, literally shoveling into yeah, trucks. Yeah, at and nine years old, even though I was bigger than my age, but, you know, even a shovel was very big and heavy for me. Lucky I, I was a little stronger than, <laughs> than my age. So he helps my physique, uh, hurt me a lot at that moment. It took me like two years then, you know, I get to experience, get stronger, get used to. Then at some point I was just a pro, the youngest pro. And the thing is like, you know, we in Cameroon, we have a tropical climate. So wet season and dry season. And um, the holidays were at the wet season, which means it's rain. Sometimes it's raining all day long. Yeah. And the adults, because they've been working entire year sometimes they don't want to go work under the rain basically like they were getting in the wet season since the truck can come in the quarry and carry the sand so you want to get in pay you are just stuck the uh, sand and then maybe after four months before you get paid and they didn't want any of that that was our opportunity like okay. so you would be working for four months at a time no, for, no. The, the holidays was like three months, basically. Yeah, three months. Uh, yes, from uh, maybe June to early September. So, yeah. And this be, is physical work. Yes, right? this it's is a physical work. Very physical work. Yeah. Do you think that had anything to do with how strong you are today? He uh, definitely helped, but um, no, really, because like when I look at me today and I look at people that we work together, because later on, other kids started to come. Yeah. It wasn't nine years old at all, but I was always like the strongest. I was always the one that can do the most job, you know, so I left there. And how much money are you making doing that? Oh, at first, I don't know, we were barely making like $1 per day. Then you start to grow. Then our first official salary, I think was almost $2, less than $2 For the whole day. per day. Yeah. So... But he was very physical. So sometimes we will work like one day, skip one day or two days, skip one days, you know, trying to work like three, four times a week. Because if you work five times a week, it's very hard on your body. You need rest, like real. Because like when you go there, it's going to be like a straight eight hours of work. So that wasn't something that uh, was very easy. Even for adults, that was the rhythm that they work. You know, it was daily, day by day. And sometimes some people would just come work one day and go for once, once a week, two, twice a week. 
Are you still going to school at this point or are you? Yeah, I was still going to school. So you go to school, school, you still work. Yeah. And then whatever money you make, you you basically contribute back to the family. I was going to school during the day. And uh, sometime when I left school, I would go straight to the sand quarry before go home at night. And uh, the weekends, we're going to go to the sand quarry. And sometime we're going to go help our mom in the farm. The holidays was those opportunities, those moments that we had more time to work. Yeah. And at what point do you realize you want to fight? That seems like a, a drastic change from probably the life that you, you grew up in. No, that wasn't a change. Like, matter of fact, I never realized that I, w- I was going to uh, sand. My dream, I mean, not my dream, my passion was everything combat related, like movies. I remember like maybe I think I was five and my parents were still together when we went to the village and I get in my dad's room and he has this big poster of Sylvester Stallone of Rambo 2 with the pen on his head, this machine gun. I look at that, I'm like, damn, this is it, you know? And then every time that I had the opportunity to watch movie because we didn't have TV. So sometimes you will get someplace and there is TV. If you're lucky enough, there's a movie going on, then I'll watch and I love those stuff. And even when we were playing as a kid, I was more passionate about like everything like hide and seek thief and police stuff like that and other kids they don't like they didn't like that what they liked the most was like soccer which is like tradition in africa and at some point you leave obviously what was that process like was that an acceptable thing to do were you looked down upon for doing that just talk me through kind of people's reaction to you deciding to leave well i didn't have so many people reaction when i decided to leave why? Because I, nobody knows. I didn't tell anybody. Just the idea of me wanting to be a professional f- boxer was crazy enough not to tell people that I'm leaving to go somewhere that I don't they know. They would have never believed it. Yeah. I mean, nobody believed in it. And in my, my entire life, nobody really believed in it. They thought I was losing my mind because nobody from where I was, from my country, even those who has the opportunity, uh, best opportunity than me before, never made it. So like, how are you expecting to, to make it? But I was so passionate about it. I always believe in it until like when I find out that I'm going to leave, I mean, I was older already. I wasn't going to school. I was working. But I started boxing there. I was 22. And that was the moment I'm like, oh, this kid is falling apart, you know. But I I keep doing it. And for people that don't already know, it's not like you can just jump on a plane and come to the U.S. and start training and then you turn into who you are. No, no, no. There's a long path between that. Oh, yeah. Like, when I realized that I had to leave, it took me like four years because I really, I had to stay f- save money, not to buy a plane ticket because I couldn't have a visa. That's for sure. In Africa, when you go to a visa for the West country, <laughs> they make a whole background check. You yeah. know, they investigate everything in your life, your family, to see where you come from. And if you can afford to leave where you're going, because they don't want you to come here with your misery. You know, so I knew that was out of option. So the only thing to do was to sneak and sneak was like migrating. And uh, it's not like we were in the border of those country. I have to go through country after country from Cameroon to Nigeria, then Niger, then Algeria, then uh, Morocco. 
And then from Morocco to Spain, that was a hell of a mission. So Cameroon to Morocco is like 3,000 miles. How are you getting there? Different countries. Yeah, different countries. You have to cross borders. I'm assuming most people aren't welcoming when you get there. Yeah, and even the border control, uh, the border police, they were there because they're trying to protect that road, that route. You know, you do what you have to do. Yeah. Some when you have to, sometimes some place you will take a car. Some place uh, you have to like go out of the car and walk to control the police station or something to get into some country or to get into some cities. It almost feels like it's a bunch of individual missions, right? Like get to the next one, then the next one, then the oh, next it's one. A, it's an individual mission. Yeah. Every step is a mission. Yeah. Like, okay, this is from here to here is a mission. From this city to the city, this city, there's a, there must be a police control in the in the road. So I have to skip that. How can I avoid that? Now from this country to this country, which is the biggest one, because there is usually like two border control. So you have to skip those one, you know, to get into other country because you are not legally allowed to be there. Yeah. For people who don't know about the map, <laughs> you have to cross the desert, which is, I assume, very hot and very difficult. The desert was from uh, Niger to Algeria. And is it true Sahara. that if you get caught, they, they drop you back in there? Not in the desert. You mean if you get caught? Uh, if you get caught, uh, I believe in Morocco, right? Where, where is it? If you get no, caught, like, you... No, the desert part was like to cross from, from Niger to Algeria. Okay. If you fall off the truck, I think they keep going. Yeah. And then this little pickup truck, like little smaller than the Toyota Tacoma. And then there's like 25 of us behind that truck and with our luggage. So you barely like sit in the edge of You're on the top truck. of each other. Yeah. And then uh, like have a cramp, hold some, trying to find something to hold for hours because that took us like 24 hours to cross. And you have to hold and you have to go through like a sandstorm, sun, get dehydrated, everything. Because at some point you guys ran out of water. So you have to hold, you know, like you hold a truck at the point that when they stop for you to rest, you can't get off the truck. You just lean and fall on the ground <laughs> because you are like a block, yeah. you're crampy everywhere. But it's a matter of... And you eventually get death. to Morocco, right? Yeah, you get to Morocco. And then is that one of the most challenging parts, basically getting from there to Spain? Yeah, Morocco was the most challenging part because regardless, it took me like three weeks and a half to get from Cameroon to Morocco. Then I was in Morocco for about a year. Wow. Trying to cross because you have to go through uh, whether it's the ocean or the land. There's a, uh, in Morocco, there's two territories that belong to Spain. In the west, there's this place called Ceuta. And in the, in the east, northeast, there's a Melier, so, which is protected by, the, by fences, multiple fences and by wires and all those stuff. And sometimes you try those. It's, those are very hard. And there's security guard in the Morocco side and in the Spain side, in the Spain side. But we worried the most of the security of the in the Spain side side because they are well equipped and organized. They have all this high tech, the, the infrared, the uh, motion detector, helicopter, everything, cameras. And are you learning this as you go? Basically, just trying things go. and, you learn and as you, they don't as work. You, you try again, and they they don't work. Yeah, yeah. And it's crazy, like 
the amount of stuff that you will learn in that process. You get to the point that you're, you have to be able to recognize a undercover cop yeah. because they are, I mean, they are looking for you all around every time, you know, everybody that you meet could be a police that is there to like search where you guys are and when he's never alone he's always with somebody so you learn those stuff how to uh, recognize one how uh, their shape how they are look their dress what kind of shoes how they work and if you have a doubt about it you're gonna seek his eyes when you have a eye connection you will know they got haircuts like me you looked at my haircut yeah, when- <laughs> yeah they have haircut like you always have a uh, Beer, yeah. wear, cut, trim. Yeah, you yeah. got like a flashback looking yeah. at me there for you, a second. You, 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 you look at them, I'm like, yeah, this is it. Like, this guy is suspect. Yeah. You know, like, then you look at his eye or you look around because he's never alone. Never. Yeah. You know. So how do you so, eventually cross? How do you get from Morocco to Spain? In the um, inflatable boat. Inflatable boat. Inflatable boat. Okay. So... We attempt, I attempted that like six times. I fell six times and I made it on the seventh time because my option was the ocean. The barbed wire, the fences, you know, that was very brutal. And when you get caught there, basically when you are a big guy, because they consider that the biggest guy is the uh, oldest and is the leader. And most of the time, the leader, yeah, they're taking out, out of on you. And sometimes they never go back. The leader never go back. Some people, a lot of people never go back. If you saw a video that I posted like four, five months ago, that exactly what's happened there. Was that like, in the forest? What was yeah, that? Yeah. That was in the forest. Yeah. So describe forest, that for people who didn't see it. In Morocco. They make a massive attempt, multiple migrants, and then some people cross and get in some people didn't and then some people get caught by the police because like sometime to attempt that you're gonna hide maybe for days you know because there is a um, infrared motion detector you're gonna sneak like and go stay to some place like for days so you basically exhausted when you you strike and then some people will get caught because of the barbed wire that caught them and uh they just get tired and uh, the police, the uh, military from uh, Morocco and from Spain, in the Spain side, they are more like strong, physical, well-organized. We, they call them the Guaja Civil, the Guaja Civil. They are very reputable. They know what they're doing. <laughs> oh, they know what they are doing. Yeah. They have all this, their headquarters, like you see all the technology, the civilians, equipment. I'm like, how come can we make it from here? You know, but for somehow some people still make it. So yeah, when they get caught at that moment, that's where the, your nightmare begins. Yeah. You know, they're going to beat, beat you up. And sometimes most of them will never go back. Yeah. And I assume it at some point, you're pretty scared, I imagine. Oh, right? you are scared. Yeah. yeah. Did you fear it- for your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You see people. The whole time. The whole time. You you will see people now and then uh, the next day maybe they strike or they get caught or something and they beat them and you never hear from them. So if you feared for your or life you, the or entire... You will see, or you will see people, they go attempt to the ocean. Yeah. And then they don't work somewhere in the middle of the ocean that, I don't know, something will go wrong because they are using this 
unflatable boat, which is not very safe, even though they have a life jacket, but <laughs> life jacket can just hold you enough for the rescue to come. And if there's not a rescue around, you're done. If you're scared for your life every day for 14 months straight, why keep going? Why turn back? You didn't have an option. I mean, believe me, you, you think about it every day, like going back. What for? You know? It was worth the risk in your mind. Yes, it's worth the risk. And then, I mean, like, and also like personally, as a man, your pride does allow you to give up. Yeah. It's like giving up. You know, you know, at the moment that you decide to go back, everything's going to be okay. That's going to be but, your life, basically, you're staying. Your failure, you're going to live your entire life with. And as soon as you leave your country or your family, they don't know where you are or what's going on. Everybody starts to have a hope on you. Like, oh, he may gonna get make there. It. He's going to make it and he's going to help us. So when you come back, you're a disappointment for your family. You're ashamed, kind of. Do you feel personal responsibility now to help people in Cameroon? Uh, your family specifically and then, and then more broadly, everyone. Yeah, I mean, you have to. I grew up very close with my siblings because we were kind of like the poorest one uh, in the family. So was very rejected by everyone. So we get a stick tie in between us. But it was just five of us. So it was pretty easy to manage that. Now the problem is the large African family and some family that you never knew and that you still don't know. And when you ask how you guys are related, they would take like a day to explain you how you guys are related. And by the time they get to the end, you forget the beginning. Yeah. That's how sometimes. Yeah. And, and is it a problem that uh, it's just gotten so big or those people all expect things from you? It's most about like... The, people expecting from you, yeah, you know, because it's so hard. So many people, they just see hope everywhere. They just want something to hope. Sometime in the bottom of their heart, they know that uh, maybe you can't, not because you don't want, but because you can't, they just want to believe in something. They just want something to believe in. You know, this, that's how bad it is. Just to know that, okay, if ever you, something goes wrong, I think at least I have somebody in my family that can help me. You know, I mean, you might not know him, but he's hoping on you. Yeah. That's how bad he is. They just want to cling to something. Yeah. They yeah. just want, they just want to hold on into something. Yeah. Even though it's not real, even though it's only a dream. And that's hurts. What percentage of people or how many people try to do what you did? Right. Because clinging on to hope is one thing. I'm assuming it sounds like a lot of people do that. They say Francis is, you know, we see him on TV. He's in the UFC. He's the heavyweight champion. That's hope to us, right? Maybe he can help us out. Maybe we can get in a better situation. But how many people get up and leave and try to do something about it like you did? Well, a lot of, <laughs> a lot yeah. of people. But the thing is, you know, I don't think like get off and do something is always about to leave. I see a lot of people out there that get off in the other way that I'm very happy about it, you know. They keep grinding. They never give up. You come this year, they have a dream. They have a goal for, for a year and they always do something. Even though they don't know, they don't realize, they always keep pushing, you know. And that's something that me personally inspired me. Like, I like those type of people I like to hang out with. And there's something about a success. Like, success is not random. 
you know, I speak to people and I know that this guy is going to be a successful person. And this guy, I mean, you can't. How do you determine that? Oh, it's just his mindset. It's all about the mindset. When you come, you see somebody, he has a goal to fulfill this water, this glass. He has a goal. He's putting drop after drop. You can't even notice that he's adding on, but he's grinding. He's not giving up. And you find out he's strong enough not to give up. He's going to make it, you know, uh, like a drop of water can fill a whole tank, a whole container of water as long as you keep doing it. And then you find some people that I'm like, ah, whatever, what can I do? You can't even help those people. I mean, and if you ask those people like, or ask yourself like, how can I help you? They can't tell you because they don't even have a project. They don't have something going on that they want. You can help them to achieve it. They just sit there. If you they have, probably just want money, right? If you have money, you give them. But the problem is not even to give them money. Is that you're going to give them today, tomorrow, the day after, continuously. But there are some people that you know, know that, oh, if I help this guy, maybe in a year or two, he will be the one helping somebody. Those guys were more excited about helping him because he, he's, like, he's like an investment. You're helping him to take out of some burden of your shoulder. Because when he helps somebody, that person doesn't come to you. That Some people will stop to him for a help, you know, instead of like everybody come through you. So kind of like help some people so they can rise up and help others as well. So you don't have the responsibility of everybody. So we're skipping around a bit, but you eventually make it to, to Spain, then France, Paris. You start training. You get convinced to do MMA instead of boxing, which I think you originally wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't even going to France. I was going to Germany because I wanted to go to England. But from Europe to go to England, you have to cross another border, you know. At this point, you're like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm done. Yeah. You know, basically because I knew that like my final destination is America, is the US. And you so, can get there from Paris. So yeah, as long as you're in yeah, a spot so where I'm like, okay, if I go there, I don't know how mo- how long it's going to take me to get in the UK. Maybe one week, maybe a month, maybe a year or years. So why would I spend that time? The only thing that I want is the opportunity to build it, to go somewhere. So then I decided to go to Germany because at that time, the Klitschko brother was... Uh, in the top, in the heavyweight boxing. So I, I assume that Germany would be a good place for me for boxing. For some reason, I stopped in Paris, then I meet people and then... Did you know what MMA like, was at the time? No. No. I didn't know. Strictly boxing. And Strictly then you, boxing, yeah. yeah. And what made you say, okay, that I'll try it? Actually, what made me really say, okay, was the UFC contract. Because even though I was doing it, I was never like, okay, I'm like, okay, since I'm doing it, why not? I first went to the gym, uh, to a gym named Kajin. Then I met a guy named Didier Kamon. I think that was the guy that in some way made me do MMA because he was like very supportive and like, yeah, you're good in boxing. You have a very good boxing. I think you have a very good potential to do MMA. And that was the first time I heard about MMA. I'm like, what is MMA? Then he started to explain to me. I'm like, bro, I don't know about that. You got a kick. I'm just trying to throw <laughs> and hands. That was, that whole... was June 2013. Wow. So a long that time was, ago. Yeah, that was June 2013. How, how much ago. was your first UFC contract for? Like, do you, was there a minimum? Did you get paid off of it? Did you no, just basically get a, a fight and then? 
No, he was a minimum. Yeah. 10 plus 10. Yeah. 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 And that was enough basically to convince you, I'm in. He wasn't most about the money. He was much about like uh, becoming a world champion. Yeah. Because when I received that contract, obviously the money was, a, it was good, but I was dreaming very big. Then I realized that, okay, what is the go- my goal to become a world champion? So if I become a world champion here, I'm still a world champion. That was what I was said about because like for me, becoming a world champion was a personal achievement. It was my own way to prove those people, those kids that was always look at me like I was below them because I didn't have book at school or pen or didn't have a scholar fee paid. So they would kick me out of the class. Yeah, I was always in that embarrassing situation. So until I decided to do something that is outstanding and that every one of them will notice and realize that I'm not beneath them. I'm not just as lucky as them to have a parent that can provide them everything that they need. So one of the things that I think is exceptional about you, after everything we just talked about, is that you seem to be more driven by the after effects, the results of things, rather than the money along the way or the other things, right? Or, the, or necessarily the achievements. And, and what I mean by that, right, is, is let's take the UFC, for example. Your last fight had a torn knee, mm-hmm. still fought when it was the last fight of your contract, right? And you, had, mm-hmm. you were supposed to get a new deal. Some would say you had everything to lose. You're the champion already. You're hurt. You go in there. You could lose the belt and lose your leverage in the situation. That, that'd be like a business mind thinking of it. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to still do it anyways? Well, I could have lost the belt. But personally, I don't think what defined me as a champion is not the belt. The belt is just some, I don't know, material, mirror that you can go in the store and buy your own. You know, everybody can have, have that belt. You can decide to go. But it has the same value. I think it's what that belt stands for. What is behind. I think it's just a proof of an achievement, personal achievement. I'm not a champion because I have a belt. And with or without a belt, I'm a champion and you can, nobody can take that out of me. People might thought I had something to lose, but personally, I think I didn't have anything to lose. Matter of fact, I think I had everything to gain. You know, I hold my position. I stand for what I believe. And that's all what it's about. I knew that I could have lost a fight. Things could have gone south, but I will be in peace with myself because I stand by what I believe. And at the end of the day, I will be in peace with that. So that's basically the reason why I go into that fight. Because even when I took that fight, my team, nobody understand why. I'm like, you can just sit and wait a year and uh, you're out of your contract. Then I'm like, no, people won't know what is in my mind, why I'm sitting. And also the narrative out there is manipulated. I need to put everything back in order. I need to get on the stand and speak. So that's the reason I took that fight to clarify things because I'm like, oh, he doesn't want to fight this and start a change narrative against me. I'm like, no, no, no. Could you feel like, what was, how did you like feel during the fight? During the fight? Yeah. I was very. Like, could you put weight on it and it was okay or it was just Are you mean about my knee? Yeah, your knee. Uh, No, no, I couldn't put weight on it like and then I was very slow and he was also in my mind yeah 
you know, I mean, I saw the doctor on Tuesday. I knew I'm like, the Tuesday don't before f- the fight. The Tuesday and before they said, the fight, don't fight. I was going to check in yeah. for the fight week. I'm like, don't fight. This knee can be irreversible. I recommend you to pull out this fight. I'm like, this your last your last opinion. Like, what can I do? Embrace this, that. I'm like, no, I don't. Then, you know, I get to the point that, as I said, I have nothing to lose. This is sort of a loaded question. <laughs> do you think the UFC treats its fighters fair? You mean all the fighters or in, in general? Yes, in general. You can speak to yourself or you can speak to Oh, no, to for everyone. myself, no. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Like, I wasn't treated fair, basically. And why not? Why not? Oh, because I, I stand for something. I ask for something. And I just, I ran into Dana earlier and we were pretty cool. But my relationship with Dana was very good at the beginning until I think I mentioned something about a fight or a contra. And not on purpose. I didn't even know what I was talking about. I think I said something like, oh, we can negotiate after every fight. I think that was And he mistake. doesn't want and people was talking about contracts or whatever in the public? Is that what the mistake is? That wasn't is? even in the public. Yeah. It was just in the room, two of us, you know. But I didn't know how big was the mistake to say you can negotiate. I mean, when you think about it, it's a business that is built on like holding, controlling people. And you say you can negotiate after every fight. So no, that's, I think that's when everything went south. You and, know? and for people who don't know, how does it work today? You basically sign like a, a few fight deal and then you renegotiate after that. After, Because right for you, you basically reached, you were the champion pretty yeah. quickly. And you were underpaid relative to what that position should be paid. Is that correct? Because the contract that I have was a contract that I signed almost five years ago. Yeah. Usually nobody stays in the contract five years. After one year, it's just to hold you, to have a control. After a year and a half or two years, they'll come to renegotiate and add more money and double. But they know by the time they come to double, your value is like five times yeah. what it is. It's always you know? undercutting each time. Yeah. So they always have a step on you. And you can't say no, because if you say no, you still have years in that control and you are probably running out of money. They know what they're doing is their business, you know, and then you will sign. And when you sign, it kick off from the beginning again. So every time you're going to find yourself tied in the contract for three years, four years. So if they come and say, okay, we're giving you a new deal. We like you. We're going to do this for you. Take this contract next. And you know, I'm like, damn, I was going to fight for 100,000. This is 200,000. How cool is that? Wow. And you just sign because... Most people are excited about it. Yeah. Most people are excited about it. But the thing is, by the time they're paying you 2,000, your value... It's five. Five hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so and do you then, think uh, that they'll ever develop a union? Right. So if you think about American sports, most of them have players' unions. So the fighters would have a union. Yeah. And like the NFL, the NBA, they split everything 50-50. <laughs> With the UFC, that is uh rumored to be about sixteen percent or call it under twenty yeah. percent. So there's still a long way to go. But I would caveat that with it's very difficult to form a union when there's not one already, because people are fighting for their, their lives, right? They're fighting to make rent. They're fighting to support their family. They can't miss a fight. They need to pay trainers. They need to pay other people. 
Do you think that will ever happen? It's very hard because what's happened 10 years ago, people trying to make a union today, there's a huge difference. The UFC is getting more power and the fighter is getting less power. Fighter is losing everything. You can't even speak now. The UFC is so big, so massive, you know. So, and then the beauty business, I think they did a great job. You know, the look on other sport, realize what was the union staff, like how the union was built in other sport. They make sure to avoid that type of business. So they control it. Yeah, if you're yeah. in their seat, you're very happy. Yeah. If you're in your seat or another fighter's seat, you're probably not as happy. Yeah. So like there must be like, there's about 700 fighters in the UFC roster today. But that seven fighter is individual case. Individual. So it's one by one. Every time it's like you against the entire UFC. It's never you guys against the UFC. So how come you're going to... Yeah, you would essentially have to convince all the fighters to stop fighting. Then how are you going to convince that? Exactly. Some of them, between two fights, they will run out of money. They will borrow money. So they have a pressure. They need money. And then maybe they have, a, uh, they have to pay their house. They have their family to take care of. And they will train for three months. Maybe they are going to fight for 15,000, 20,000, and that's all what they get. And you will tell them, like, oh, you're doing union. What the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> union Who's going to pay his, my bills in, in union the Union won't save his family or yeah. his house or pay his rent or his mortgage or anything, you know. And you can blame him. That's the reality. And everybody will do the same. And that's the good thing, like... That's something that the USA do the best. They control you. And when you're stubborn, when they think that you have something in your mind, they freeze you to make you go run out of money. They know how much you're making. They can't imagine how much is your spending. So they know. Like in the past three years, I was refusing to resign a contract. Then what's happened? I get freeze. I get like between about 10 to 12 months between each fight in the past before I fought TP. Why? Because I was refusing contract. So I'm like, okay, let's see. Let's wait. You know, they know that you're going to run out of money. You need, at that point, I needed like two or three fights per year. To afford basically the training, everything. Yeah, everything, to subsidize. Yeah, the lifestyle, my, everything. My lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. But they know that. They make sure you don't have that fight. What can you do? In your, your contract said you have to fight. When they tell you to fight, you have to fight. But your contract does obligate them to give you a fight. They can sit you down for two years. You can't say anything. Until so you why, go to them asking for fights. Begging. Yeah, begging. Technically. So like, unless they want to make you fight, you won't fight. And that's something that caught my attention. Then I'm like, okay, what is this contract good for? Like, how this contract protect me? On what? Nothing. I have nothing in that contract. You know, like when you sign that contract, it's just to give your ownership to the USA. But technically, it's not protecting you from nothing. When from you anything. sign that first they deal. They can decide to cut you whenever they want. Yeah. They can give you a fight, yes or not. And they don't have to answer to anybody. They do whatever they want. So why am I signing contract? Why not, am I signing multiple fight contract? I have no protection in that contract. Unless you can guarantee me something in that contract, then there's not a reason to do a contract. Matter of fact, you say I'm an independent contractor. Let me fight every time. I can fight for you and go fight somewhere else. 
why am I having an exclusive contract with you with no benefit with this, with that? I'm supposedly an independent contract. I think that's actually the biggest point. I, I agree with that a lot. I think that if you're labeled as an independent contractor and you're not given the benefits that a normal employee would be or, you know, someone of your nature, maybe some would say it makes sense to give you the ability to do things outside of the UFC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should. And what does Dana White say when you say that? Uh-huh. What does uh, the UFC or Dana White say when you tell them that you should be able to do things outside of the UFC? Well, I didn't tell them that at that point. What I was asking was just to fight, you know. And uh, <laughs> it's funny because like everything started when I fought Junior Dos Santos in June 2019. And then this conversation started to come up. And then I'm like, no, I still have a fight in my contract. And at that time, I still have three fights left. So I fought like five fights in um, 18 months. Yeah, so I still have three fights left out of eight. Then I find myself from like June 2019 that I had a fight on uh, March 2020, but the COVID hit. So then we postponed the fight for... But this is the part where they're expanding it, right? Because you're basically trying to fight as quickly as possible to get those eight fights out of the way and then get a new contract. But they know that you only have three left. And I wasn't excited. And the mistake that I did is that I I said, at some point I was frustrated. I'm like, I just want to fight. I want to deliver my three fight. Yeah. And that didn't sound good for them. Like, so it was going to be free. So I get to the point that after the Rosenstruck fight, I have one fight left, but the contract said it's 14 months. So I'm like, okay, if they, they have to give me a fight at this point, because after five months post Rosenstruck, I'm like, I'm almost five months away from being out of that contract. So they have to give me a fight, Yeah, you know, and if not, I'll be free in May. And that's why I was... I assume they're going to give you a fight before then. Yeah. So at that moment, I wasn't worried anymore. I wasn't even asking for a fight. I knew they're going to give me a fight. And I knew they're going to give me a title fight. A big fight. A title fight. Because if you win a title fight, a championship close kickoff. Yeah. And explain (laughs) what that is for people. Oh, the championship close, I think is like a close in the contract that says by the end of your contract, if you're a champion, he automatically extend your contract for three fights or one year. Yeah. yeah. So it's another little trick. It's another little trick. And with all the extension close, they can extend your contract like five years, no matter what. We are just even lucky in that they can go past five years. Otherwise, you will be like in perpetuity. <laughs> Who are you going to fight next? Who do I going to fight next? I don't know. Where do I going to fight next? Who do I going to f- fight next? I don't know. Maybe John Jones, if we get things sorted out, because uh, this contract situation hasn't been sorted. What has to get sorted? Like more money or different terms? or I think it's also about the term. You know, for somehow after all this, I get to the point that I think UFC should consider like having a fighter, not a union, but having a fighter advocate, somebody that will be in the board meeting and speak for fighter, defend a fighter, call them out on their decision, some decision that can hurt fighters. Because there is a lot of things that is wrong. The company obviously is their company, but fighter make the company. And we have nobody in there. They decide everything. 
I think we should have somebody there who should speak for us. Do fighters, other fighters, think you're crazy for talking about all these things or behind the scenes that they like, buddy, buddy, they like it? Yeah. yeah. But so many people can talk about it. They are not in the position to talk about it. I was going to say it. most can't, right? Because of yes, their position. most can't. Most can, but they all... And some choose not to, even though they could. Well, and once again, it's very hard yeah. to be judging in this situation because everybody has his hand tied. So many people doesn't have an option. Like as for myself, I have, for, for example, I have a boxing option. Not many people in the USA roster have that option. So that might not be the great thing that they have, but at least it's the best or what they think is best for them. And you can blame somebody from thinking for thinking of his own best, you know. So, yes, I think they should consider that, like have somebody who speak for us because we are being very, I would not say exposed, very not considered, you know. And the, the decision that they are making sometimes can hurt us. Back in the day, fighters used to be able to have sponsor. Someone was even having more money in the sponsorship than their own fighters, you know. Then things started to shift. They start with, okay, the one we want to make the sport clean for the TV and this. I can understand that. I can understand that we wear a uniform. But we could have have a right to have a sponsor on our uniform, at least two or three. Maybe some brand is not good enough to be wear on TV or what. Yes, then we they should have a division. We'll check that. I'm like, okay, this product is not what represents. But boxers, sport, yeah, are allowed well. to wear stuff on their shorts you know? and all that. Yeah, right? so yeah. we could have that right. And I think that is a big source of income for fighters that had been taken, uh, away. taken away. Last year, I lost a contract. Because they signed with Crypto.com. Now I have to wear a shirt with a big head Crypto.com on it. And I don't have anything on that deal. I don't need even to approve that. I just have to wear it. Even uh, if you have a deal with someone who's a competitor to them. I was about to have a deal with someone who was a competitor for over a million dollars. The pull off of the deal. I'm like, okay, we could have get past the fact that we wouldn't be on the big screen. But to get our competitor on you while you are out there and then we are behind the scene trying to figure out this for this amount of money. So a company <laughs> a company is going to offer you a million dollars for a sponsorship. More than a million dollars. More than a million dollars for yeah. a sponsorship. Yeah. But then their competitor is a sponsor of the UFC. Yeah. So it doesn't make much sense because you're now wearing the competitor stuff too. I'm now wearing the competitor stuff. Then I realized that that should be my business, you know? I should be like, okay, I have this sponsor and they will be like, yes, it's good for the brand or maybe it's not good for this reason. Yes, we can understand that for the sport, but I should be able to have my own sponsor on my shirt. And that's something that I think is being taken out of fire. So we don't have a sponsor anymore. Our salary is staying the same, not improving. The company is getting big. We are getting to inflation because uh, five years ago when I moved in Vegas, like the rent... Rent went up a little bit? The, oh, no, a little bit, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Uh, the price of everything went up and you still basically like have the same contra model. No, it doesn't work. 
You know, I think we should consider that. And the company is doing well and they're proud of it, which is good. They're doing a good job. But we are also part of it. You guys should at least consider that, you know. We have a healthcare. I have a call from um, a debt collector uh, the other day, last week, actually, about the medical bills that someone wasn't paid because my insurance kicked off on the 22nd of January, 2021. Before that, my insurance couldn't cover anything. Why? Because it wasn't a fight. I'm like, I was in the training camp for this fight. You know, I was even in the fight week. It wasn't even like in the training camp. I was in the fight week when I saw the doctor, but my insurance couldn't cover that. It wasn't a big amount of money, but those kind of stuff, you embarrass me. Then I'm like, Yeah, I would argue that, right, that you're one of the biggest stars in combat sports, right? That's just a fact. You have millions of people who follow you, do all these things. You're an asset to the company. You shouldn't have to be worrying about medical bills, debt collectors, borrowing money to live and do all these different things, right? And And it's not the first time. Yeah. That I have those type of stuff. And I have had it, had it before. And sometimes they will just explain to me, like you were in a training camp and then you didn't claim that after the fight. I'm like, I should have a health insurance, not need to claim stuff after fight to be taken care of. Like I go there now in the gym. I don't, I don't know, get hurt, training. I'm not covered. I have to subscribe insurance on my own. Personal insurance. Which Because uh, you're an independent contractor. I'm an independent contractor. <laughs> but you can't fight anyone. Who anywhere has, else. Was in the exclusive yeah. contract? You know, personally, it's not a big deal for me. But those fighters will still like fight with the minimum contract. I think it's 12 plus 12. And they fight like twice a year, have to pay everything, everybody out of that. Coaches, one, you don't make any yeah, money. Yeah. Even a $1,000 bills for them is a lot, it's a ton of money, you know? Yep. And then today I kind of like, I walk around the gym and observe a lot. You know, I understand those fighters. I've been there and I look them sometime when to start struggling. I'm like, this guy shouldn't be at this point, you know? Yes. I subscribe my own insurance. Yeah. Honestly, like, I don't care, you know, where, from where I am today, I can take care of myself. But how many of us can do that? can afford that. Yeah. So, and then in the sport that you put in your body in the line every day to perform well, I think that should be the minimum. I think we should get the type of insurance that even after retirement, after being in the company for so many times, you could also have an option to have insurance in the maybe two years after retirement or two years after whatever it is, because you take a lot of trauma during your career. Some people after retirement, they go out and suffer from trauma. You know, they still have a traumatism. They still have a lot of pain. Yeah, the pain doesn't go away. It's Pain doesn't go away. And then (laughs) you have to check to your, your bank account, check this. And some fighters are just like, okay, fight, fight, fight. And they don't, they don't see past fighting. They don't have a business ambition yep. or a business vision. They don't understand the business side of it. And when they retire, they're just like, okay, what next? They don't even know what next because they never think about it or they never plan that. So I got two more questions. First, what was it like bringing the title back to Cameroon? Oof, that was amazing. You know, Those videos were amazing. Yeah, that was amazing. Like 
thrill. Cameroon is the place that everything started. You know, those people, my whole struggle, my biggest struggle was there. The reason why I always wanted to be a champion was in Cameroon, was not to feel low anymore, to prove that I'm good at something. I'm not just useless. I'm not beneath anybody. I don't just have an opportunity, but I'm just there. So to go there and look at those people and I could have relate to any of them, doesn't matter how much they were, I was able to relate on them. I understand them, their story, everything, yeah. you know. It's cool to be a world champion, to be here in Vegas or wherever you are. Uh, it's cool, right? But you like getting recognized by people or no? Get, getting, get home is yeah. different. It's not about getting recognized. It's, it's like a personal pride, you know, personal achievement. Like At home. those childhood dream that you have, you're like, okay, I have it. I prove it. I'm somebody. I'm somebody here, you know? So. Has your that, life changed here in Vegas over the last few years? It's changing. Yeah. It's changing and it's about to change. It's going to change big time. <laughs> I like that. All right. Last question. I don't want to say one year or even two years, because if you win your next fight, when you win your next fight, the champions clause and all that. But if we were to look five years from now and we sit here again, are you in the UFC? Are you boxing? What are you doing? Five years from now? Yeah. I'll be an accomplished businessman. Yeah. No I'll, fighting at all. Uh, Still. Still fighting. Yeah, I think there's where? nothing. You didn't answer that part. Ah, you mean uh, in the UFC or not? Yeah. Where you're talking five years or now, from now, I don't know, six months from now. Yeah. So I can respond from five years from now. I'm still going to have a talk with the UFC and we're still going to find out what next, if yeah. we can figure this out and if we can make the sport right, some stuff right, then we will talk. I, will, I mean, honestly, I can see myself five years from now in the USA as uh, maybe six months from now I'm somewhere else I don't know yeah but hopefully this works I think it will be a beautiful story to tell five years from now how we struggle back five years ago and where how far we came <laughs> yeah and how many times you've maintained the belt and, and held the belt for how long yeah and how the sport improved how changed you know what changed in the sport where what is the situation of the fighter how did it improve you know how fighters are more happy and more compensated that would be cool i like yeah. that and by the time i'll be five years from now yeah depend on how i feel i always say like from my 40 41 i'm just gonna listen to what my body tell me if they say this is the end. If I don't, I don't have that motivation, I'm out. You know, it's all about the motivation. Wake up every day, want to do it, get excited about it. Just think about training, inspiring, get excited. Then I'll keep doing it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I feel like we could talk forever, uh, <laughs> but I want to be mindful of your time. So thank no, you so much. Good. We'll do it again. Hopefully before five years, but at least in five years, we'll do it again. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. We will, we will do it again. And, uh, hopefully next time we're going to talk about a lot of business yes, more sir. than just like you fight yes, by the time. Well, oh. we'll, uh, we'll put Dana right here next time. Right. <laughs> uh, if we put Dana, I think we need to put some, um, dividers. No. Maybe some champagne to celebrate how far we came. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Francis. All right, everyone. That's it for today. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.